1: an avid baseball fan, and an unashamed lover of all things Tolkien. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Religion and Philosophy from Simpson College and a Master of Divinity from Duke University Divinity School. John worked in Christian ministry as a Director of Christian Education and Faith Formation for eight years in various mainline churches and currently works in the Central Office for Public Schools in Indianapolis, Indiana. He resides in Indianapolis with his lovely wife, Laura Robinson, and two awful cats, Carl Bart and Flannery O'Connor. John is currently completing a book on the Apostle Paul that is tentatively called Beyond Justification, a defense of Paul's gospel. It will be published through Whitmanstock and co-authored with his dear friend and mentor, Douglas Campbell. John is also the co-host of the YouTube channel Apocalypse Here, with his buddy Ethan Bergen, a channel bringing theology and biblical scholarship to the everyday person, welcome John Depew to the Grace Saves All podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: Well, I wanted to uh, I wanted to visit with you because uh, mm-hmm. you and Ethan had been doing a series on an article that appeared in Christianity Today just in February of 2023 mm-hmm. by Richard Mao, who had been the uh, uh, the president of. Uh, Fuller Theological Seminary for 20 years, and the title of the article that appeared in Christianity Today that he wrote uh, is, I Don't Want to Be a Universalist. And of course, that got the attention of all of us who consider ourselves to be universalists, and and, um, you and Ethan did a couple of episodes on the YouTube channel uh, responding to it. And so what I wanted to do was, uh, let's just say, jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, <laughs> and have a have a discussion about this. So I'm going to begin with some first part of this. I'll begin with just some background on Richard Mao. Yeah, uh, but before I do that, anything you'd like to say?
2: No, other than I appreciate you having me on again, and I, I do think that yeah, that's sort of what piqued my interest too. Is someone who's sort of directly saying I don't want to be the thing that I you know think is really integral to the Christian faith. So I'm. It, yeah, and, and usually
1: people usually people will say something like, oh, "I'd love to be a universal." Yeah, exactly. So it's it. sort of, but, yeah. <laughs> but you know, the the Bible doesn't. There's some judgment passages in the Bible, sure. and God has to be just. And there's some things, and it's part of the history of the tradition, and it's just right. something you got to accept, you know. Right. But he's like, nope, I don't want to be one. Yeah, exactly. So that was like, and, okay, let's see what's going and, on here. And, yeah. and if you study Richard, or if you if you study his writings, or if you just listen to him, he's like the nicest person you would ever want to meet. Yeah. Yeah. He's super nice. He's yeah. all about let's have, let's have good civil discourse. Let's be yeah. loving. Let's be generous to each other. His whole contribution to uh, Reformed theology, really, I mean, that is maybe not his whole contribution, but one of his main emphasis is how can Reformed folks be participants in the world in a helpful way? Yeah. They're genial, good folks who are good citizens who love people. Yeah and who are civil but who have their beliefs but they're civil about it you know so he's the he's the gentlest nicest calvinist yeah you can possibly imagine
2: yeah and he has a it's clear in in his his writings is that he has a real sort of heart for the marginalized and and oppressed people who are really, you know um as i'm sure you'll talk about in his background but that, that that's just i I obviously like that too. And so there's a connection there, right? Um, Yeah. But yeah.
1: Well, so uh, in the article, he really kind of jumps into his critique of Christian universalism pretty quickly, and he doesn't really give background on himself. So I thought, well, let me go and and do some uh, digging into his own background, his own writings. And he wrote kind of a whimsical book on his take on Calvinism, which is his background, and the title of the book is Calvinism in the Las Vegas Airport. Okay, and it's called Calvinism in the Las Vegas Airport because the introductory story in the book is taken from a scene in the movie Hardcore, where George C. Scott plays a father in search of a daughter who has gotten involved in the pornography business. And as part of his search, he works with a woman named Nikki, who's a prostitute, and he wants to see if Nikki... Can help him find his daughter, and in a scene in the movie, these two unlikely people have a conversation in the Las Vegas airport, where they've just run into a dead end in their search. And Nikki asks George C. Scott's character about his background, and he explains that he's Dutch Calvinist. And when she's asked about that, what that means, he explains the five points of Calvinism from the Tulip acronym. Now, the heart, the sc- the movie hardcore, the screenplay, it was. Well, not just a screenplay. It was it was written and directed by Paul Schrader, who wrote the screenplay for Taxi Driver. And the significant thing is that Paul Schrader had grown up in the, I believe, the Grand Rapids area in the Dutch reform community around Calvin and had gone to Calvin College where um, where Richard Mao had was teaching at the time. But. He had, he had sort of very publicly rejected Calvinism quite publicly. He then went on to UCLA to study film, wrote the screenplay for Taxi Driver, and then wrote and directed Hardcore. So in the beginning of the, the reason it's called Calvinism in the Las Vegas airport is there's this scene, which Richard Mao sets as the beginning scene for the whole book. But it tells us a little bit about Richard Mao's background and, and kind of what's going on here. And the conversation is, uh, as Richard Mao says, as they are sitting in the boarding area waiting for their plane. Nikki informs Jake that she considers him to have a very negative outlook on life, and it is obviously connected, she thinks, to his religious beliefs. What kind of church do you belong to, she asks. It's a Dutch Reformed denomination, he responds, a group that believes in TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. The conversation continues. Nikki, what the crap? Jake, it's an acronym. It comes from the canons of Dort. Every letter stands for a different belief like... Are you sure you want to hear this? Nicky. Yeah, yeah, please go on. I'm a Venusian myself. Jake. Well, T stands for total depravity. All men through original sin are totally evil and incapable of good. All my works is filthy rags in the sight of the Lord. Nicky. That's what the Venusians call negative moral attitudes. Jake. Be that as it may, U stands for unconditional election. God has chosen a certain number of people to be saved, the elect, and he's chosen them from the beginning of time. L is for limited atonement. Only a limited number of people will be atoned and go to heaven. I is for irresistible grace. God's grace cannot be resisted or denied. And P is for the perseverance of the saints. Once you're in grace, you cannot fall from the numbers of the elect. That's it. Nicky, before you can become saved, God already knows who you are. Jake, oh yes, he'd have to. That's predestination. I mean, if God is omniscient, he already knows everything, and he wouldn't be God if he didn't. Then he must have known, even before the creation of the world, the names of those who would be saved, Nikki. Well, then it's all worked out, huh? It's fixed, Jake. More or less, Nikki. I thought I was messed up, except messed up is not the word that's actually used, right? So anyway, I saw that was really interesting. That that's uh, that tulip. Uh, do you remember when you first ran into tulip? That was a, Probably <laughs> something you weren't. If you're in the United Church of Christ that wouldn't have been anything that would have been part of what you were really
2: no not thinking at all about. no and i'm also an, an adult convert so I, I wasn't raised in you know evangelicalism or anything like that or any sort of like neo calvinism or anything like that as, as well um, so no I, it really wasn't until sort of college that i ended up running into that um And it was actually just, it was after studying Calvin himself (laughs) and it wasn't sort of prior to that, that I ended up encountering this sort of attempted, basically synthesis of what Calvin is, is doing into that, that kind of acronym. But yeah, so probably in college. So Uh, yeah, so
1: that's something that a lot of people really don't know. I mean, if you're into Calvinism, you know about it, but if, if you're not into it, you might not know about it. Right. And so but Richard Mao was really, um, he's hes very clear that this is his faith background. And so right. I just want to go through a little bit about what, how he explains his understanding of Calvinism in the book. So in chapter two of the book, for distinction's sake, he says, I will not feel obliged to touch on everything that's important for the Calvinist perspective, taking the standard formulations for granted. I like to stick with the Calvinist label to signal that I see those other themes as built on the foundation of the tulip teachings. That's what we just went over. I subscribe sincerely and wholeheartedly to the Reformation area confessions, particularly the three documents that have long defined doctrinal orthodoxy in the Dutch Reformed tradition, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort. Okay, so he says that really clearly in the book. So here are just here are just some snippets of things from the Heidelberg, from the Heidelberg Confession. Can you live up to the laws of God perfectly? No. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Uh, Where does this corrupt human nature come from? The fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise, this fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in a sinful condition. Does God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. God is terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge, God will punish them both now and in eternity, having declared, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but also just. God's justice demands that sin committed against His supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least part of our righteousness, because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law, but even our best works in this life are imperfect and stained with sin. Okay, so I think that's pretty, you might say, hardcore. You might say. (laughs) Okay, so let me go on for some snippets from the Belgic Confession. Sure. Moreover, all the light in us is turned to darkness, as the Scripture teaches us. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Here John calls the human race darkness. Therefore, we reject everything taught to the contrary concerning human free will, since humans are nothing but the slaves of sin and cannot do a thing unless it is given them from heaven. For who can boast of being able to do anything good by oneself, since Christ says, No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me? And then uh, he goes on in his book to say, the basic premise of Calvinism was about an all-powerful God who rescues sinners from their otherwise hopeless condition by sovereign grace. Uh, He says that the canons of Dort, on on the other hand, introduce an important modifier stipulating that all human beings are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, this suggesting that the real point is that we cannot do the sorts of good that can contribute to our salvation. Now, one of the things he also talks about is is that he really doesn't. The hardest thing he has about Calvin, defending in Calvinism is limited atonement, and so he he says that he says that that limited atonement is is the hardest he has to defend. He does believe it. He says it does seem to me to be a necessary element in the Calvinist system of thought, and if I have to defend it, I will. But I also find that I don't hold to it with the passion I have for the other. Calvinist basics. In short, the death of Christ was sufficient to remove the penalty for sin as such, wherever and in whomever it resides. Having made full pardon possible through the work of the cross, it is God's own sovereign decision as to whom He will, according to His eternal counsel, extend that pardon. When it comes to the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy that God desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2 4, it seems obvious to me at first glance that He really does mean everyone. But then I read some Calvinist theologians who want me to understand that everyone here refers to every one of the elect. I understand the theological impulses that push them to this interpretation, but I cannot buy their argument. So, you know, he he is trying to go, I think, by the standard Calvinist definition, but you can tell that he does recognize there are some tensions and that he even recognizes that there are some scriptures which... Go against, seem to pretty blatantly go at least some scripture that goes against blatantly the limited atonement idea.
2: Right, right. It seems like yeah, he's he's recognizing that there is a, I mean, tension is is one thing. I do think there is some kind of contradiction from where I'm coming from, but that yeah. that could be a conversation. But yeah, he he seems to be recognizing that the 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 problem for him it seems is that he he's already kind of. Uh, set up the system that's already at work so once you commit foundationally to something everything else has to follow from it so once you get to a point where like oh limited atonement seems to make the most sense here but i don't really see it you kind of just got to go with the limited atonement if you're committed to the premises that come before it and that build up that system so I, i get where that that kind of uh him feeling that tension there and not really wanting to defend limited atonement with the sort of passion that he would. um, And
1: he also talks about about in the book how he has an uncle who's a Baptist, but kind of a Calvinistic, Reformed Baptist. Sure. And he says that according to his uncle, his uncle used to say, by the way I see it, um, we have to paint above the door of salvation the words, whosoever will may come. I hope, though, once a repentant sinner walks through the door, He will look up and see that the Lord has written on the other side, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. This still strikes me as the right way for a Calvinist to view things. This to me, you know, because in Calvinism, there's this conflict, there's this um, debate or disagreement about the free offer of grace. So as as a preacher in Calvinism, should you stand up in front of a group of people and say, uh, all of you um, are you know, all of you are welcome. We want all, everybody to come and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, or should, according to their theology, they should they say to the group of people, um, God has chosen some people to be elect for salvation in this world and others not to be elect. And if you are feeling called to salvation, you just might be one of the ones that is elect. And if you are feeling elect, Let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and act on that. So he thinks it's it's like he's wanting to put the nicest the nicest front he can possibly put on the gospel proclamation.
2: Right. I think that's exactly right. And something that this brings up too with with Calvin himself in particular in, in his theology, um, which I actually I don't dislike a lot of Calvin's theology. To be honest, like I, I think. The idea that like salvation is in God's hands, ultimately, sure. I agree with that as a universalist. <laughs> I totally agree with that. I buy that, you know, without question. It just depends on what you, you do with that and what you, what you actually mean by that. Um, something that Calvin does that later Calvinists have turned into kind of like a either a source of anxiety or, or a source of like, I can know if I'm saved and I can figure out if you are not saved right, is they can try to figure out if they're elect or not within this. That mm-hmm. ha- happened sort of later on. Calvin himself is like, you kind of can't know this stuff. This is not really your concern. Honestly, you, you can't know it. God made that decision. You can't know it. It takes that off the table for you, ultimately. Um, that said, I mean, that's my kind of reading of, of Calvin on double predestination. Um, you you can and you do have later interpreters come along and say actually we can kind of know who's in and who's out within the system, but but I think the key Calvinist point with predestination is actually we can't know, and that it's just right and, and
1: because yeah. of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, you can you can think you're elect, but if you fell it, away toward exactly. the end of your life, then it would turn that, out well you weren't elect. Yeah, you, were just you weren't you weren't yourself. elect all along,
2: right? It's yeah. not that you mess something up. It's that you actually weren't elect. All
1: now, along. one of the things that is interesting, too, about his perspective on this is whereas uh, he says that he thinks that Calvinism is often described as, well, God is just going to say the, the elect few. And so in his book, he writes um, an encouraging word comes from the old Princeton uh, uh, professor there, A.A. A. Hodge, who succeeded his father, the great Charles Hodge, as mm-hmm. a theology professor. Although heaven can only be entered by the holy, yet such we are assured it is the infinite provision made for human salvation, and such the intense love for human sinners therein exhibited, that the multitude of the redeemed will be incomparably greater than the number of the lost. My father, Charles Hodge, at the close of his long life spent in the defense of Calvinism, wrote on one of his conference papers in Trembling Characters a little while before he died, I am fully persuaded that the vast majority of the human race will share in the Beatitudes and the glories of our Lord's redemption. Remember that all who—and then this is uh, Mao— remember that all who die uh, before complete moral agency have been given to Christ. Remember that the vast populations of the coming millenniums are given to Christ. Then shall the promises of Christ to the great Father of the faithful be fulfilled like the letter of Thy seed shall be like the sands of the seashore. So it it seems to me that he is, he's trying to, um, I would say, describe a generous, a, a generous, the most optimistic Calvinism you can sort of define, yet still be within Calvinism.
2: Right, right. That 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 sounds right to me. Although I will point out that someone who considers himself some kind of Calvinist or a reformed thinker would be Karl Barth. And he seemed to expand it even further. I think he would give the kind of most <laughs> generous account of Calvinism. Uh, he's working right. with a reformed account of election um, that he sort of reworked. But I, yeah, I I take that point. I think he is, I think Mao is trying to give a more generous yeah, kind of account. You know, so sort of the of, sort of yeah.
1: way I read him is given yeah. where he started, he's really come along Direction. Absolutely. Yeah. And instead of you know, just sort of heaping criticism upon him, you know, you know, good for you for heading in this good. Absolutely. You know, I agree. In a more, in a more kind of open direction. And then at the end of the book, he's kind of summing things up, and he goes back to this conversation in this movie between Georgie Scott and Nikki, and he says, uh, "My main hope for Nikki, if I ever had a chance to talk with her, would be that she come to put her trust in Jesus Christ." If she eventually accepted the Calvinist way of viewing things, I would also be immensely pleased. Mm. But I wouldn't feel horrible if that did not happen. Maybe after hearing the message about Jesus and coming to trust in Him as her Savior, she would join a local assembly of God or a Methodist congregation, or maybe she would even become a devout Christian, mean, mm. even become a devout Roman Catholic. I want mm. to say this clearly. That would be okay with me as a Calvinist. Mm. So again good for him. You know, it's not like Calvinism or nothing. Yeah. And he, you know, it's like, you know, there could be all kinds of, you know, Christian approaches, but I couldn't help wonder when I was reading that, well, what if Christy, uh, what if Nikki had, you know, what if we could transport somehow Gregory of Nyssa uh, to talk to Nikki, the father of the fathers, (laughs) and, you know, could somehow magically, you know, make it so he understood her language and Mm -hmm. You know, was updated on the culture and could sit down and explain to her his understanding of Christ. Would that be okay if Mm -hmm. Nikki came to Christ through Gregory of Nyssa?
2: It's unclear. He doesn't, I mean, especially from the article, which we'll get into, it seems like, I mean, he does have, he, he talks about, not to get too far ahead, but he does say that, like, Hart's account of universalism is more or less within the kind of Christian framework, according to how he thinks about it. Right. But he also comes down hard on sort of Byzantine Christianity as well. And I, I I don't know if you would accept, you know, somebody like Nyssa or anyone who who learned from Nyssa as someone who is, you know, it's an okay person to walk you into Christianity. I I just don't know.
1: I don't know. Yeah. Well, one of the things I have, I, kind of said to people is, okay, you know, as far as my Christian universalism goes, maybe you don't agree with it. But what about this? What about if it if it's a golf club that you can put in your bag? Yeah. And first and it might come in handy for a certain shot that would work like this. Yeah. You meet somebody and they say, well, I can't be a Christian because I can't believe in a God who put anybody in hell forever. And you could say to them, Well, you know, I think there may be some reasons for that, like free will. And there's some there's the tradition of the church, which is pretty decidedly that there is some kind of eternal separation in hell. But there is a minority and um, distinct uh, historical Christian tradition uh, that God may well restore all of creation. It goes back to early uh, centuries of the church. I don't particularly hold it as my point of view, but I think these folks are just as Christian as I am. Right. And before you and before you um, give up on the Christian faith altogether you might want to check that out.
2: Yeah. Here's another golf club. Here's a different one. Why don't you yeah. try to use that?
1: Yeah. 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 And so, you know, my goal isn't, you know, just to say, okay, this is the only golf club you can ever use. But yeah. say, you know, why why not retrieve this and rescue it and put it, it used to be in our bag. In the early yeah. centuries of the church, this was in our bag. This was in our golf club, the <laughs> theological golf club that we could use. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do is, Is restore it. Uh, And so to me, it's okay if he doesn't want to be a universalist and we'll get into his article now, but I think it would be better that if, if he could also say, but if being a universalist is the only way that somebody could be a Christian, that is what I would want. Right. So uh, if, if, if we can, hopefully, if we could have, um, you know, Richard move more that direction, you know, I'd be really pleased with this as um, as an outcome of the podcast, or just anybody that might um, just say, "Well, uh, there's maybe more of an argument for Christian universalism than I thought, and there's maybe some more holes in in the standard uh, articulations of the faith than than we are really used to thinking about." Okay, so now let's go on to this uh, this article and. I've been doing an awful lot of talking and I'm going to do uh, what, uh, so now what I will do is I'll kind of shift. I'll, I'll I'm will i going to be the article reader and I've broken okay. it down into nine sections great. and you spent a lot of, you spent a lot of time already on this article. So I'll read a section of it <clears throat> and then you tell, you kind of tell what uh, you and Ethan had kind of talked about it and I may throw, throw a few things in and we'll just kind of work through the article that way. That sounds great. Is that okay? Yep. Okay. So now this is, Richard Mao's article, uh, I Don't Want to Be a Universalist, which appeared in the February thirteenth, twenty 2023, 2023 edition of Christianity Today. Okay, starts out, I am not a universalist. There is nothing surprising about my saying that. Having spent my career in evangelical institutions, I have signed many theological statements affirming the realities of heaven and hell, and I have always done so in good faith. But here is something that would surprise many of my fellow evangelicals. I don't even want to be a universalist. I've often heard the opposite from evangelical friends. I would like to be a universalist, but I really see no biblical basis for the view that everyone will be saved in the end. It is reassuring that those who express this sentiment are usually acknowledging that the Bible is clear on the subject. I do worry, though, about their wishing that it were not so clear. I am convinced that the idea of universal salvation fails to capture some important elements in the Bible's teaching about the requirements of divine justice. The scriptures make it clear that God heeds the cries of the oppressed and that on the day of judgment, all evildoers will be dealt with according to their deeds, Revelation 20.12. Universalism tries to get around the unspeakable harm that people do to each other, evading the need for repentance while detracting from the cross and a real joy in God's justice. So I'll stop there and hear some of your... Thoughts. Sure. And I have, I have a few of them. Um, I, I, so the point about
2: also, this is, it's a minor point, I guess, but it's also kind of something that needs to be made clear up front. He says he's not a universalist and he signs certain statements that talk about the reality of heaven and hell, which implies that for universalists hell isn't real. Really, in the way that he thinks hell is real. Um, That's just a basic misunderstanding, I think, of universalist arguments. Hell is real for universalists. Um, I can't think of one, really, in the history of the church who has said there is just no hell. And we can sort of get around that. Hell is yeah. real. In the
1: early in the yeah. early universalist you know thought that uh, their conception of time was a series of ages that would finally Absolutely. be wrapped up at the end of the ages and then god would be all in all and but they were quite content that there could be ages and ages of purification that god was in no rush no rush to force anybody into anything but to wait until Um, you know, their own, the contemplation of their own sin and culpability and the reality of their situation. And repentance.
2: repentance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And repentance and faith. Yeah. 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 So just the start of this is a bit, it just seems a bit off to me in terms of how I understand universalism. Um, He goes on and talks about the scriptures, sort of makes it clear that there is this certain account of, you know, hell, the Let me just say that whenever
1: yeah. I'm dealing, whenever I'm reading an evangelical who says, well, the Bible's clear, that's a yeah. little bit of a trigger for me. Yeah, me too. Because me when too. I was growing up, I didn't grow up in church like you, but I was, when I was around evangelicals, that's one of the things they would always say is that, the, well, the Bible clearly says this. Right. And it's not, it's not an argument, right? It's, it's also
2: just objectively false, why are we talking about this? <laughs> right. We're talking about it because it's not that clear. <laughs> there are people who don't read it that way. Right. So you can't just assert that. And I mean, I guess you can, if people already can. agree with you, right. Yeah. If, if, if you're writing to people who already agree with what it means for scripture to be clear. So, but that that's not, I don't think that's that helpful. Um, I think within this already, in terms of what he's talking about as justice, there's an assumption here that God's justice is just retributive already. Mm -hmm. It's starting to kind of sneak in. Why? Why do we have to think that? You know, I I mean, there are tons of other accounts of justice that we could pull from um, as well. Uh, So just to point that out initially, it gets a bit more clear as we go through, but I just want to kind of like set that kind of,
1: yeah, P- put that in say people's say, ear. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, let me just say this, that it's funny to me that he would talk about, you know, that justice is an important thing for him. It's justice. It seems like you know, on the, on the political and the social yeah. realm that, yeah. that people should be treated equally and fairly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and then he's talking about here that the, you know, about the sort of, um, uh, that there has to be, you know, fair, fair consequences. Um, But it seems to me that Calvinism is really the most uh, patently unjust system imaginable because in Calvinism, um, God makes a world in foreknowledge knowing that there are going to be certain people in this world that that don't have any chance. Yes. And if you go by the canons of Dort and the Belgian Confession and those things, if you go by those, which he says that he does. Yeah. Uh, those are very serious. So what God is going to do is express his eternal wrath at yep. these people who are born, and he's mad at them when they're born yeah. for their inherited sin. Then he gets even madder at them yeah. for the actual sin they commit. But they, unless they're of the elect, they're totally depraved. So they're just continuing to do these things, which they don't have any other option but to do because they can't do the things that please God. So they don't have the option to please God. So they keep making God more and more angry, and then God sees it as the only way to vindicate and dis- and display his righteous justice and anger to, uh, instead of putting the wrath on his son, uh, he's already put that on his son for his yeah. elect, but for those non-elect, that full wrath, which is kindled up and growing, now falls on these people who never had a chance, and then he punishes them forever and ever and ever. Yeah now that seems so remarkably unjust to me that it, i don't understand how a person could make peace with that in their soul in the name of the most unjust god i can imagine be then concerned about justice
2: absolutely that that's there seems to be a disconnect i don't want to call it i hesitate to use terms like you know cognitive dissonance or anything like that i i don't try, i don't like to try and sort of overly psychologize things. Um, but this is a, a kind of instance where it's like, it seems like there is a real disconnect there, right? Between what yeah. you're actually committed to theologically and what you want to do kind of practically in the world, right? Because I, I think you're exactly right. and it, it, it even goes back, it goes back further to God's predestination from before all ages, right? right. Where there is a kind of what seems like an arbitrary Choice. Well, it's un-
1: you know, as Choice. we went through in Tulip, it's unconditional yeah. election. It's not based upon anything. Exactly these any good things that the, God knows these people will do. It's based upon the idea that they won't do any good things unless God elects them right. to be able to so, do so.
2: So it seems fundamentally, at least fundamentally unfair. I do you think you're right that it is. It it reads to me as fundamentally unjust as well. I imagine that Calvin is coming back and saying, and we can talk about this more later, and it's yeah. something that David Bentley Hart has gotten into quite a bit, and I think it's really important, is that they would say, well, God's ways are higher than our ways. Oh, God's yes. justice is mm-hmm. what God decides to do. So if God is just, ultimately, then whatever God does is just. Okay, That'll get us into some tricky problems with especially equivocity right? (laughs) Right. Well, what does, what does anything mean? Yeah. What what, What, do any
1: words? Yeah. So there's no
2: analog analog between how we use those terms now and how we apply them to God, then we're just going to be talking nonsense at that point. And that's an important thing to bring up. It's not to say that God isn't transcendent and God is beyond us and God is, you know, uh, other than us. It's not to, we're fully acknowledging that, right? That That's mm-hmm. just true about who God is and God's being and in relation to human beings. But there has to be some way we can talk accurately about right. God, right? Um, and I think that's a point at which, at which once people appeal to justice simply being something that God does, even if it seems arbitrary to us or, I don't know, evil to us, <laughs> it must yeah. be just and
1: loving, right? yeah and the evil in the in and, and the idea about um well you think of God being just, so you think of immediately this image of a judge or maybe mm-hmm. a king whose whose glory whose glory has been um offended, and so he must reestablish his holiness and his glory uh by punishing uh, those right. who have detracted right. from his honor um but that I think that leaves out the most fundamental image of God which Jesus left us with which is yes. God as father yeah who in the greatest justice that a father can know is the setting right of the child so that the child can come home and right. it's it's about reunion and putting things back together and putting relationships back together that's the making things right that uh that word uh justification um can mean also just making things right, making them line yeah. up again the way that they should.
2: I think that's the most accurate way of thinking about justification. And within that making right, it, there's also a deliverance that happens too, right? We're we're delivered from the um, enslaved condition that we're involved in, right? All of us, we're, we're not, mm-hmm. we're actually in bondage to sin. We can't just sort of will our way out of it. Um, right. Calvinists take that to a certain extreme that I don't, that I'm, unhappy with, and I don't think it, it makes a lot of coherent sense, but if, if the fact is that we're constrained, we need help.
1: <laughs> we can't right. do
2: this on our own. We, we need God right. and Christ to come in and deliver us from it and make and, things and, and, right.
1: And, and, and I don't understand the ultimate point of punishing yeah. or putting somebody in a penitentiary kind of situation in order to learn a lesson if the lesson is never learned. right? So right <laughs> in the case <laughs> or, or let's say the yeah. lesson is learned. Let's say the lesson is learned. Like, like God, I'm truly sorry. I truly see why everything I did was wrong now and I'm ready to come home. And the father says, nope. Yeah. Or you're cast out for eternity. You can spend the rest of eternity in weeping and gnashing of teeth now. Yeah, I know that you want to come home and I know you understand everything you did was wrong. And I know you want to make whatever amends is necessary, but no, no, no. Or just to allow them to evolve and devolve into some kind of crazy a post-human existence where they just, but they're finally whatever reason or humanity they have is finally snuffed out. That that to me doesn't doesn't re- finally resolve anything for the parent.
2: Absolutely, and and to put this in a slightly different register as well is like if you're okay. Let's say humanity is in prison. What's the solution to being in prison or in bondage or enslaved to something? If you want to get out of it, what is it? It's being released. It's being mm-hmm. set free. What does punishment do in that situation? Especially eternal punishment. How does that solve a problem of enslavement? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It only exacerbates the problem that you're in. So there, there's no sense in which, like, punishment really works if we're thinking about sin and this and in the problem. Confronting the, the cosmos, it's not just human beings. The entire creation is in bondage, as we know right. from Romans eight. Um, if that's true, the solution just cannot be punishment. That's too weak. It's too weak. We need something radical to get out of that, right? We need things to be made right, as you said. We need to be delivered.
1: To be so right, free. and that was the, in the early centuries of the church. A lot of the early church fathers had this idea that the good news was essentially well. Um, uh, gospel, eangelion, yep. is a, a Greek word which originally had to do with somebody running a long way a lot of times and making the announcement, they didn't have cell phones, you know, so making the <laughs> announcement that the battle had been won, announcing the good news that there had been a, a that a great victory had been won. And so, you know, a big way of interpreting what Jesus had done was that he had won a victory, the greatest victory of all over the powers of sin and death, releasing right. humanity from their bondage and captivity to this
2: that's right it's exactly right and I, I think that's what paul's doing all the way through so <laughs> we i talk about this in the book <laughs> that i've been writing with doug like that that's the heart of it and i think that's just the heart of the good news really is god's victory yeah
1: that's i think a beautiful declaration of the gospel the good news yeah. that that the victory has been won that yeah. the powers of sin and death have been canceled that the kingdom is now here and present come and live and receive this good news uh, right now, beginning now, and live in it in God's aeonian eternal life. Right now,
2: that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's a
1: pretty good gospel.
2: It, it sounds <laughs> nice. Yeah,
1: it's pretty, it's pretty neat.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> I, right, I have a continue. couple of other things to say on this. Okay, too, go ahead. Unless go ahead. you want to kind of go no, on, no, no, go ahead. We've um, got time. So, th- with the uh, the paragraph or the section that you you uh quoted from now, um, he talks about the idea of universalism as trying to sort of evade people being held accountable for their actions and repentance. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's also just, it's not, it's a misreading of of universalist arguments. It doesn't align with any Christian universalist I've really ever heard, to be honest. Right. It's a common caricature of universalism. I grant that. But it's yeah. not and he actually what
1: universalism, universalists right. think. And he, and he does, as a scholar, he does not give any examples, not a footnote to who he's even right. referring to.
2: Right. So that that's concerning to me, right? Like I was like we were both talking about, I, I think in order for God to reconcile the whole cosmos to God's self, um, I think sin, death, evil, the flesh, all of the associated powers— need to be burned away by the fires of God's restorative justice so that all things can be healed and restored to God. Right? So part of that process is a judgment. It's not evading judgment. It's just talking about judgment in the way that it's re- it's revealed in the gospel. It's a gospel oh. account of, it's an evangelical account of, <laughs> of, of justice, right? Uh, the judgment also involves repentance. I think too, we're, as we're confl- we're actually confronted with the flames of God's love, I think we're confronted with something that turns our hearts to repentance, okay? Just because it's not sequenced in the way that somebody like Mao would want it to be doesn't mean repentance is not involved. Same thing with justice. Just because it's not speaking about justice in the same register that he is doesn't mean justice is, is not involved. So that that's, that's what I would say about that as well. Um, in addition, before we move on, just because universalists are actually using a different script when we're talking about these things, just to kind of build on what I was saying. In fact, I think it's a way that aligns more faithfully with the, the God of unconditional love that's revealed in Christ. Um, exactly. It just doesn't mean we're avoiding things. And that's where I get a little frustrated is that like, just because we're not talking about this in the same way as, you know, evangelicals talk about it means we're, not talking about it, right? (laughs) We're actually trying to attend closely to that revelation, to the revelation of God. And it's a God of love, right? Fundamentally, um, we're actually trying to attend closely to that God. That's what's motivating this. And I don't think there's really anything else motivating it fundamentally. It's just trying to be faithful to that God. So,
1: Okay, next part. Mal writes, There are certainly some aspects of evangelicals' traditional teachings about hell that do trouble me. I don't want to hear repeats of the fire and brimstone sermons of my youth. These are similar to the infuriating message of folks who carry signs at funeral gatherings declaring that the deceased person will burn for all eternity. To be sure, the hellfire images are there in the Bible, as in Matthew 25:41, when Jesus tells those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But those biblical passages have become so much the stuff of caricature that unbelievers can make fun of the imagery while ignoring the clear biblical message that persistent unbelief has eternal consequences. Such frivolity works in the same direction, away from the joy and the seriousness of salvation, as does unloving glee. We evangelicals have gained a reputation for being mean-spirited people, and I am glad when my friends look for ways to tone down the rhetoric while not compromising the essential message. Yeah, I I, I mean, at least
2: it's pretty self-aware, you know? I think th- there's something commendable about that, that, like, yeah, there have been evangelicals who have talked about this stuff in a way that's direct, like, and intentionally harmful to people and like he's kind of wanting to distance himself from that or or just say like we need to do better right i think that's that's commendable yeah. um in a basic sense so um as we talked about before he he's wanting to bring a sort of kinder and gentler approach to this and i i appreciate that i i don't really have much to say on that i don't know if you do David. Oh, well,
1: okay. So uh, what what happens is when you get talking about Christian universalism, somebody brings up, well, you know, it's settled. Uh, Matthew 25, the uh, <laughs> yeah. parable of the sheep and the goats, that pretty much settles it right there. And there's some other passages you just need to, I mean, it's just plain. Um, so we have to, you know, so we have to go with it, but doesn't talk anything about the, no reference to the idea of the universal uh, fatherhood of God. For Absolutely. all no, no yeah. references about scriptures yeah. that seem to really point to the idea that God sincerely wants to save all, that God surely would be able to be sovereign in God's will to be able to do these things. You might want to quote Lamentations 3.31, sure. uh, which says, uh, for the Lord does not cast off anyone forever. I mean, you might want to at least rec- You know, note that people who think differently aren't ignoring scriptures. They are reading different scriptures and are just trying to work through a tension, That they find in the scriptures themselves. And uh, as if nobody has ever had any other viewpoint about Matthew, uh, the 25th chapter of Matthew, which is notoriously difficult to interpret and usually turns out to be a really difficult passage for people who who want to say, well, uh, salvation is all about believing in Jesus. Because if you look at Matthew 25, whatever it's about, it seems to have something to do with uh, generosity towards the poor and the disenfranchised. Well, so talk a little bit about this, how you've dealt with like Matthew 25, and there's a, there's some really important Greek words in there, aeonios and colossus, that have to do with the the timing or the endurance of the sure. punishment or correction. Uh, just If you could just yeah. talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, I can. I also want to be clear. I may, I may have been to quick to say that he's being self-aware because he, he also says like he's using the same language that gets used by <laughs> people who are trying to just dunk on other Christians, which is the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. Right. Scriptures clear here. I, yeah. Um, I do think he, he's saying that he wants to, to give a kind of kinder approach how that works out. I don't know his stuff well enough to know how he's working it out. So I, I was just trying to be a bit more charitable, Maybe to a fault, I don't know, but uh, as far as matthew twenty five goes, <laughs> yeah, so what's going on here so the I think one of the questions in matthew twenty five because it's a it's a long and complicated history in terms of who are actually the sheep and the goats right it kind of all depends on what Matthew's doing with uh et Ethne. so what he means by all the nations I that that's a contested a contested issue. From where I'm coming from, Matthew's ecclesiology is really really hard to figure out. <laughs> I don't really know what's going on with Matthew's community. Um, so that that connects with who I think the nations are in some sense, um, or it can depending on what reading you take. I mean the Davies and Allison who have sort of the classic. Commentary on, on Matthew, identify different kind of candidates for this, who the, the nations are or who is being referred to there. It could be all Christians, it could be all non-Jews, it could be all non-Christians, it could be all non-Jews who were not Christians, it could be Christians alive when Christ returns. So it could be strictly eschatological. Um, it could be all humanity, right? There's just a lot of different candidates going on here. The most common reading is the one that is talking about all of humanity. So it's, humanity is in play here. I do think there's a case to be made for the all-Christians reading, and that's what I have tended to lean toward. It kind of depends on how mixed Matthew's community is and whether he sees... A difference in terms of sort of the quality of someone's discipleship so you you kind of see this at work in the wedding banquet sequence i think that's matthew 22 um that's kind of what i lean toward at the moment although you did give me uh, a very compelling reading of matthew 25 that i quite well, like. can i and can if you want to jump just, in here yeah let me just
1: show you so um well first of all you get at the end of the parable and you know the sheep and the goats are divided and they the um the goats the, the sheep go into aeonian zoe yeah and the the goats go into aeonian Colossus. and that just that just means the life of the age or the chastisement of the age or the judgment yeah, of the age yeah or the, something like the life that life of god yeah. or the judgment mm-hmm. of god in other words, there's a lot going on with the Greek. With the Greek, where is there anybody that looks into this, you know, for ten minutes is going to find is going to find that out. But there's another aspect that I hadn't really thought about, which I enjoyed thinking about, and that in the New Testament, there's a lot of it, the, the theology of the nations, which is kind of weird because we tend to think of Christianity as this uh, sort of individualized experience, right. whereas the Bible, there's a lot of talk about nations, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know, and then the book of Revelation, you know, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations, which is, you know, it's not just individuals, it's somehow a larger corporate things that are happening here. So this is what I, I wrote in my book. Another as- aspect of uh, Matthew 25, 46, which complicates the interpretation of the parable, is that Jesus' whole parable of the sheep and the goats may not be directed at individual people at all, but rather at the nation's In other words, at first glance, one might think the parable is about Jesus judging individual people based upon whether they showed compassion towards the poor. But upon a closer reading of the whole passage, it may be Jesus intended his teaching to be a warning directed at the nations, especially with regard to how they treated his followers. In the beginning of the parable, Jesus describes how all nations, literally all the ethnos, will be gathered before the judge. At that time, these ethnos will be judged by how they have treated Jesus' brothers and sisters. When Jesus is speaking of his brothers and sisters, of whom is he speaking? Most likely Jesus is here referring to his followers, to the ones he affectionately called his little flock. According to Jesus' warnings, how the ethnos, or the nations, treat his brothers and sisters, his little flock, amounts to the way that they have unknowingly treated him. What Jesus meant by the parable of the sheep and the goats may have been something like, nations and peoples, as you treat one of these brothers and sisters of mine badly, you treat me badly. And as you treat one of them well, you treat me well. Be warned. Mistreating me by mistreating my brothers and sisters will result in God's judgment. The parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 is a fascinating study. Is the parable directed at individual people or at nations or both at once? The parable makes us all pause and consider how we are living our lives. It contains serious warnings. However, I believe even these warnings can be seen to fit within a biblical view of God, who includes all and who intends to ultimately bring all nations and peoples back home to God through the process of purification from evil. Yeah, uh, I, I love so, that. I,
2: I I think you're probably you're probably right, and in, in, in what you're saying. I didn't. I, we, we talked a little bit about this kind of before the podcast uh, the other day. So my my wife. Laura Robinson is a, is a Matthew scholar and her reading of sort of ethnos here, what's being referred to in Matthew 25 is strikingly similar to how you're construing it, which is very interesting. So she sees, yeah, it's how you treat Jesus's disciples more specifically. I think it's about how you're treating these missionaries. Who are going out and trying? Right, to- Right, yeah. Because
1: why are they? Yeah. Why are they in hell? I mean, why yeah. are they in jail? Right. Well, they've been thrown in jail because they've been testifying to Jesus. Right. And so, what he's saying is, whenever you visited one of those people that got thrown in jail for testifying, you're visiting me. me. Being yep. of, you're, you're doing this to me. So yep. be careful how you treat these people because that's how you're treating me. Which would make sense as to why these nations wouldn't understand what was going on. They would say like, Well, when did we ever see you? Yes. Well, yeah. Saw me whenever you saw one of my followers however you treated my followers that's how you're treating me
2: i like i like that a lot and it's becoming more and more compelling to me especially given the sort of um if matthew's community or communities bodies of people people who are trying to evangelize in some way and they're going out they're missionaries um, right that makes a lot of sense with what you're saying if they're going out and trying to spread this message about jesus um, they're going to run into some problems. I mean, we get this with Paul, right? He runs right. into a lot of he
1: gets. And and what this and, will result yeah. is in the judgment at the judgment of the nations. Yeah, there will be there will be consequences for that.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And the but question then, is,
2: ha- it, are the are the consequences eternal or not? Right. In in the way well, that we talk about it.
1: Well, and but in the, in the New Jerusalem, you've got the the leaves on the trees that are for the healing of the nations.
2: Right. So there's right.
1: a there is this sort of healing of the nations, the so sort of the guilt of the nations and the healing of the nations, which is a theme that runs and it's sort of hard for us to relate to that. We don't think about think about it that way now,
2: right? We don't. We definitely don't. But yeah, I, I, it's it's a really compelling reading, and I I like. I mean, Ionias is ambiguous. We don't really know what's going on there. It seems to be referring to in Matthew twenty five as possibly an Age of Correction, so you have Colossus used there, Um, and Life of the Age, as you were saying. Um, Mm -hmm. You can put that into a kind of double eschatological horizon kind of move, which is compelling to me, just theologically, that there is Mm -hmm. an Age of Correction for some people prior to being fully Restored back to God after they go through, or it could be ages of correction. It could be a long right. time. We don't really know. Um, so, you, you, in terms of a, a sort of theological reading of that, I have no issue with that. And I think it's perfectly appropriate. And lots of people have done it in the past. So, yeah. All
1: right. Well, let's continue um, on with uh, yeah. his article. He says, um, I hold out for a wideness in God's saving mercies. I take my cue on this from Charles Spurgeon, who observed in one of his wonderful sermons, Heavenly Worship, that while the Bible tells us there will be a multitude that no man can number in heaven, he has not found anything in the Bible that says that there will be a multitude that no one can number in hell. Suppose an evangelical said, I would really like to believe that Jesus was not divine, but just one of the great ethical teachers, but the Bible does not allow that. How could we trust such a person's faith? But the case of universalism is different. A desire to believe in universalism is usually born out of concern for loved ones. We rightly don't feel betrayed by those wishing for the eternal joy of Heather or Bradley, loved ones they pray for fervently, or perhaps they are thinking about their wonderful non-Christian neighbors. We can empathize with those concerns. Nevertheless, the biblical depiction of a state of eternal separation from God is real. As N.T. Wright puts it in Surprised by Hope, when we study... the New Testament on the one hand and the newspaper on the other, unquote, we cannot avoid the conclusion that divine justice requires a decisive end-time accounting for the grave injustices that occur in our world. For example, a man who sells 13-year-old girls into sexual slavery and enjoys living off the profits will face ultimate condemnation. So will murderers, blackmailers, and hypocrites of all kinds. This does not mean that we can give up on any human being in our witness to God's amazing grace, When we sing to God be the glory, we affirm that wonderful process that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. In our hope that vile offenders will come to true faith, we must also find ways of assuring their victims that the Lord will not ignore the demands that justice be done. God's forgiveness is still just.
2: I want to kind of tackle this into two parts. So Mao initially brings up basically the desire behind universalism tends to be about concern for people you love. Right. I don't know if that's really true. It might be for some people, but like I was saying before, I imagine most universalists are universalists because they want to be faithful to the reality of God and his love and his mercy and his goodness. Right. Mm-hmm. such that when we say love mercy and goodness with respect to God we actually mean it so i just want to i i mean it could be the case that some people are come at this because they really don't want to see their loved ones going to to hell or something like that but i i i'm just not sure where he's getting that from i don't know what do you what do you think well, about like- that
1: Well, in my own case, I went through a time of, you know, depression when I was in college and sort of, you know, uh, atheism or agnosticism Mm -hmm. or something. And I remember, uh, you know, the God that had been, you know, portrayed to me by evangelical fundamentalism didn't really give me any hope. And I remember kind of thinking to myself that, well, if there was a good God, maybe that would give me some hope. And then I was to somebody recommended I read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. That seemed like a much better God, like a potentially good God. And I thought, well, if there is a good God, maybe I could believe in that. And so I went on that journey and that worked. that vision of God worked for me for a while until I realized that there was something deficient in the goodness of God. If God had not made provision for all of the evil and trauma that would be in the world that God would bring into existence. And so that finally it was only a universal salvation that would resolve all of this so that the goodness of God Yes, finally needed to be manifested in the restoration of creation, and it was right. people like David Bentley Hart. Yeah, and so, so what happened was the goalpost got moved for me. Yeah, uh, I came to see that okay, the goodness of God then requires then if God is all good, all knowing, and all powerful, requires a, a resolution of creation that manifests all of that. Well, so then I can't enter into a state of worship personally yeah. for a being that that to me is less than good. And so that's, I mean, that to me, that, that in my book, the necessity, the, the subtitle is The Necessity of Christian Universalism. I just don't think we can give an adequate accounting for the goodness of God unless the final revelation of God's character at the end of creation is an apocatastasis and a restoration and a healing of everything that God allowed, every evil that God allowed into creation for the ultimate good purpose of us learning and being formed and growing up and maturing. But if we don't all if If creation never makes that final maturing moment and God finally isn't all in all, then God isn't, in my view, I can't see God as being ultimately good anymore. and it's I just can't I can't worship uh, that vision, that understanding of God. But Christian universalism allows me to hold all of these things together. and that's it's not just about uh, somebody that I know personally. It's about me thinking that how can I be saved? if every other human being who is my brother and sister isn't saved as well and recognizing that we're all a part of humanity together, it's that grand vision that's driving the whole thing.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Well, it's true. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. it's also important to say, too, is that, and I, I, I want to talk more a bit later on as this, as this um, article goes on, because there are points where the, the relational point that you were talking about with humanity is really appropriate because I think that's such a strong, you know, support of a universalist case, especially the universalism that we've, we've been talking about. Also something that relates in part of the paragraph that you read This does not mean that we can give up on any human being in our witness to God's amazing grace. In our hope that vile offenders will come to true faith, we must also find ways of assuring their victims that the Lord will not ignore the demands that justice be done. God's forgiveness is still just. Okay, this kind of baffles me a little bit, especially in the light of what you were just saying too. So we're not supposed to give up on any human being
1: you and right. I. we're supposed to do our best for every
2: human being but i guess god does eventually god gives up how does that make any sense we, we're supposed to be people who are
1: right well never also, giving up and for a calvinist uh, well who knows the you know divine decrees of election this is not up you know this is not up for grabs god's not waiting around to find out how uh, creation is going to turn out if God gives up on somebody, God gave up on them before the beginning of creation. God, Absolutely, in in Calvinism, overlooked them and their eternal salvation uh, and wrote that off as the cost of creation. Some for some reason going into creation. So yeah. God is not like God was. Uh, God gave up on them before the whole thing ever got started. Right. <laughs> it's not Yeah, You're right. It's not even that
2: God eventually will give up on them. It's right. That God just did from before all ages. Right. Which is a bit worrying, but, but then there's a disconnect between that and how we're supposed to act as image bearers, as people who are. Right. Well, okay.
1: Another thing. Faithful, well, according, right? well, according to the, you know, like, so he's talking about these people that are doing these horribly depraved things. Yeah. Well, According to his own confessions, the Belgic confessions and the canons of Dort and all of those old confessions, human beings are dark darkened and evil that we inherited we inherited darkness, we are born dark, we we're born sinful, we we're born depraved right um, now, as he points out, that doesn't mean that people still can't do some good things, but none of those good things will ever add up to anything like salvation, but the other end of that too means, yeah. And we also might just do terribly evil things because right. we are dark and we might just manif- We might just continue to build on each other's darkness and just do worse and worse and more horrible things. So where does all of that, where does the person come from who sells his 13 year old? Sounds pretty depraved to yeah. me. Uh, and he doesn't have, and, and if God is not going to extend uh, grace to him, he has no way out of that depravity. So he's just continuing to express the depravity that he was born into, that he has no hope of ever, you know, ever escaping if he's not one of the elect. So while I understand, you know, the appeal to justice, there's a deeper injustice that's functioning underneath the service that is just not being, it's not being thought about or even recognized, or uh, it, it's just as if, well, I, clearly I'm the one on the side of justice and the universalists don't care about it. Right.
2: And the implication there that universalists don't want God's justice to be done, as I've said, it's because we have a different account of what justice is. <laughs> because we're trying right. to attend to how God reveals God's justice in Jesus Christ specifically, that's where we get our account of justice from. Yeah.
1: Now, and we, if you're, yeah, good. Well, if, if also if I'm the thirteen-year-old girl that has been sold into sexual slavery. Um, I'm, I might also ask God the question, what the hell were you doing? Where were you? You obviously knew this was going to happen to me. You let this happen to me. Apparently you knew about it at the beginning of creation. (laughs) You, It was part of, you may not have directly willed it, but you directly allowed it. You knew it was in by indirectly it was going to happen. So, you know, what's going on here? Where's the justice there? Um,
2: Great point. <laughs>
0: Great so,
1: point. It's just a—and and for somebody that's coming, that's why I was so interested to, before we got into this discussion. So, and this is coming from a Calvinist background. These are people that are supposed to be thinking all the time about the eternal decrees of God and the sovereignty of God's decisions and how that all works out through all creation and how nothing is happening that is beyond the, God, the scope of God's understandings. So
2: just to kind of pick up on, on this— about justice, I think we in our, we, as fleshly people who are constrained <laughs> by sin and death, we want to see people punished for their offenses, right? It seems mm-hmm. natural to us because it's the way that our criminal justice system works right. in the States, specifically, especially Americans, right? And I I, I get the desire on my worst days <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I find myself thinking this kind of way when I see all the pain, all the trauma, all the oppression in the world. I get it. I do get it. But I think the only relevant question here is how does God's justice as revealed in Christ actually operate? And how do we attend to that? Not how do I want God's justice to operate when I feel like there should be a punishment going on in that situation where something has gone wrong. Um, I I think that's really the point there. And and he has this point about forgiveness still being just kind of at the end of that paragraph. Um, I don't think that can actually be the case within a system. Uh, Forgiveness and sort of associated terms like mercy for example, they are irreducibly different from justice construed in re- retributive terms. <laughs> Forgiving someone for what they've done is antithetical to punishing them according to what they've done. Right. Forgiveness and mercy. act So forgiveness and mercy, especially f- mercy, but forgiveness as well, would actually be anti-justice on this approach, if you're really running with the retributive model. So I don't actually see how those two things kind of go together. I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I do think justice and mercy do go together, but not if you're running the sort of hard retributive model.
1: Yeah. that, that, that Finally, the, the, the justice, uh, the justice of God is for setting things right. So whatever, whatever requires all of that, If the person at the end of the process is not set right, then the justice of God has not been accomplished. Exactly. I I would just say I would just as I now have come to see that. All right, let's continue on because he's a he he has been talking about a particular vision that N.T. Wright has of uh, uh, what happens to those lost souls who devolve uh, past the point of meaningful human existence. So he says, uh, N.T. Wright says that individuals who persistently rebel against God eventually become so dehumanized that they irreparably damage the image of God in which they were created. When they pass on from this life, he says, after having inhabited God's good world in which the flickering flame of goodness had not been completely stuffed out, they enter into an ex-human state no longer reflecting their maker in any meaningful sense. As the psalmist observed, sinners become like the idols whom they worship. Psalm 115.8, and as Wright points out, this dehumanizing pattern turns us into creatures who are not only beyond hope, but also beyond pity. Wright reinforces his point by citing C.S. Lewis's observation in The Great Divorce, that the Lord will eventually proclaim to unrepentant sinners, thy will be done.
2: Yeah, um, so just, I have the article up as well, so it goes on with some of what he's quoting from Wright, doesn't it? about this sort of ex-human state? Well, I just wanted
1: of... to say, I just mm-hmm. wanted to say, in the, you know, I remember when reading N.T. Wright's uh, book on this, that I was surprised that that N.T. Wright thought that this was an adequate solution, <laughs> that the solution <laughs> to this is, well, okay, well, God just lets them devolve, continue to devolve into past appointing of meaningful existence, in which point, you know, like, their parents aren't even, could have in, in any even, so we don't need to feel bad about them because they're really no longer, you're sort of like ex-human, these ex-human um, uh, uh, creatures. And it also says that um, he talks about that they irreparably, it says that what happens is they become so dehumanized that they irreparably damage the image of God in which they were created. Right. Well, if now if we're getting back to Calvinism again. The image of God in which they were created was irreparably damaged and lost in the fall of Adam. Yes. Look at the, look at the Belgian Confession, all of these canons of Dort, all of this stuff. So now that, now what happens is human beings are born in a darkened, sinful state. They've inherited the sinfulness of Adam. They've inherited Adam's guilt. They keep piling onto that. So they're on track to become this. Yes. Unless... They are rescued, and they manifestly cannot rescue themselves. That's yeah,
2: and, and within that system, they, they they also can't be rescued because right. they right they can't and...
1: rescue themselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, God can't. God is not going to rescue them, and they can't be rescued without God's help.
2: Right, right.
1: So, it's a, so, it's it, a, but they're trying it's to hopeless. make it like, well, yeah. they just keep choosing. They just keep making these bad choices over and over again. Well, of course they do. They 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 don't have the capacity to finally do anything else.
2: Yeah, exactly. And at this point, it just seems like we're making stuff up to justify God giving some people up because they're not people anymore,
1: right? And at this point, you know, and I understand that he's trying to be a nice Calvinist. Yeah. But at this point, I kind of like the mean Calvinists better. At least they're consistent. Yeah, the mean (laughs) Calvinists are consistent. They're brutal. Yeah. But there but there's a logical consistency. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the God that they end up describing is ultimately good, Absolutely but not. there's at least a consistent logical coherence, and they're yes. not trying to make this nice all they're not trying to make this all nice and to yep. try to make it make sense on some kind of human level. They're saying it's beyond human understanding, and this is the this is the sheer brutal truth of the situation
2: right, right. I also think here, with respect to Mao's use of right, and it's kind of going back to Lewis as well, I think it's conceding to a, a radically individualistic and unchristian account of personhood. <laughs> the fact that we can sort of willingly become non human or ex human, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, right? As persons, we are determined by relationships with others, our friends, attachments, associations, loves. Um, even with those we've never met, I think, it, or even faintly think about. As persons, I, I think we're dynamic entities. And th- this isn't really that controversial. I think a lot of people talk about person in this way. <laughs> we're, we're always becoming... Until we find our fulfillment in God's life beyond all ages, I think. Um, To become something other than truly human by some sort of individual or discrete choice or choices, I I think that violates this account of personhood. We simply can't lose our being in that way. It, it yeah. doesn't make any sense. We can only eventually be fulfilled together as humanity, like you were talking about. Uh, once we become fulfilled in the good itself,
1: right? Right, and and so I, you know, I I, I lean towards those uh, biblical accounts of, the, of who people are. You know, like Paul talks in Act seventeen that we are all God's children, and God is right. not far from anywhere. it. and that there's that we have a that we have a relationship to God. We have a we are ultimately the children of God at our, at our essence. And so that's something that can't be erased. It can be, it can be, you know, covered over, but it's, it, you know, he talks about that, that finally, that the imago dei, yeah. that the very image of God that we have as children of God can become irreparably damaged, that we have the power to cancel out the image of God that is in us. And I guess that's, to me, that, that's where I would just, I think there's room within the Christian tradition to differ on that, and that sure. the, the whole idea of the way that God pursues restoration is that God can can destroy yeah. a person right down back to the Imago Dei, and then build it right back up again. And that's, you know, that that's not, that God uh, sets that as part of the parameter, but God doesn't let... The amago dei itself ever be lost?
2: Right, right. I think that's a crucial, a crucial point for sure. And I, I think, yeah, the the relational point too about this stuff. I think is an important point for universals. I mean, I it's. I don't know if Mao is. I, I don't. I don't know if he actually really did read Hart's book, as we'll talk about. But I, I don't know. Um, I think the logic of. A sort of relational kind of personhood, where it's not discrete individuals making choices. It's kind of it's irrefutable, I think. Unless all are saved, right? No one is within our view. We're so deeply interwoven with each other that even the damnation of one single person <laughs> would m- mean that we're fragmented as people. Right. Right. Uh, we would, in some sense, be in hell if we're saved. And vice versa, which is a weird thing to to kind of pause it, right? Or we'd we'd have lost what determines who we are, to the extent that there really wouldn't be any continuity between ourself in this life and ourself in the next, which would be a huge problem as well, right? Who would we be at that point? Like who who would I be if if I went to heaven and my spouse got damned? I wouldn't be me at that point. (laughs) Sure as heck wouldn't be me if we Mm -hmm. were separated in that way. Um, I think it's precisely this scenario of fragmentation and separation that we could call ex-human, ironically. Um, (laughs) Right. It's like, like,
1: well, it's like you're projecting a little bit here because, (laughs) you know, you're talking about people becoming ex-human, but. It's almost like when people adopt what I call infernalism, what that does is, is it s- subtracts from their own sense of humanity. Sure. And that when yeah. people embrace universalism, it 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 makes them fully human in the in the sense that they say, "My humanity means that I cannot that my humanity cannot be fundamentally separated from anybody else's humanity. That we're we we are all in this together, and we all sink or swim together." Right. Now that's a to me, that's a fully human human. Yes, a, a human being who can say, "Well, uh, yeah, uh, you know, there might just be millions and millions of people that are in you know hell forever, and I'm sure God has good reasons for that. And uh, you know, I'm going to do what I can to help them out. But if they finally reject God and I never see them again, or, or yeah. they're in hell forever, whatever that means, then that's just going to be the way it is. Well, yeah. that's that kind of callousness." Uh, then, you know, backfills in in all kinds of ways, I think, into their lives.
2: I agree. Totally agree.
1: All right, let's let's move on here. Uh, Next part of the article. In order to keep myself honest on this subject, I do keep up on the defenses of universalism. Although many who argue for universalism make no effort to reconcile the Bible with their disbelief in hell, there are some arguments that stay within the pale of Christianity and are worth paying attention to. The most recent and significant argument is set forth by David Bentley Hart in his book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation, which has received much much attention. A couple of my evangelical friends have recommended it to me as fascinating and challenging. Hart discusses the topic on a number of fronts, but I could not get past his refusal to pay attention to biblical specifics. All that the Bible provides, he tells us, are a number of fragmentary and fantastic images that can be taken in any number of ways, arranged according to our prejudices and expectations and declared literal or figural or hyperbolic as our desires dictate. In other words, hell might not be hell. And if it isn't, no one goes there, of course, nor could God be taken as serious at all about avenging evil.
2: Oh boy. Um, so let me call myself, pray for me. Um, <laughs> I mean, it seems like another kind of way of insinuating that, Number one, Hart doesn't really think hell is real because hell might not be hell, right? He doesn't actually think hell is a real thing, but he does. Hart thinks hell is real. (laughs) Um, Again, just because Hart doesn't understand hell as eternal conscious torment (laughs) or something like that doesn't mean hell isn't hell for him, right? For Hart, hell is real. It's purgative, right? Right? it removes in us all um, the ways that all the things that sort of get in the way of living in the fullness of God. It's just precisely because it restores and delivers humans to who we, we've always been meant to be that it's important here. That's the thing that actually removes everything that gets, gets in the way of being with God. Now, as far as taking, what did he say? Taking the, Bible seriously or something like
1: that? Um, Well, it was. he says, although many who argue for universalism make no effort to reconcile the Bible with their disbelief in hell. Now, well, that's interesting. I would like that to be footnoted. I would like to see anybody in print that does this. I would too. As Uh, a matter of fact, you know, it's what's, and, and I think what's interesting is he can say this as an evangelical. However, I keep up with the books that are coming out about Christian universalism. And in this age when you don't have to be a scholar or a PhD to get a book published, just regular people are publishing books. And the regular people that are publishing books, a lot of them are evangelicals, evangelical backgrounds, and their books about Christian universalism are chock full of scripture. Yep. It's all about, well, how do we understand these words in their original context? What, what does Gehenna mean? What does Hades mean? Right. What does Sheol mean? How come, the, how come the English translations of the Bible clouded all of this by using the same word hell to translate all of these oh, words? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How come, the, how, come the, yeah. how come the word aonios gets translated eternal in some places and uh, age in another place? How, right. how come these passages, uh, how, how, come we, how come we were never alerted to any of these things? And these are people that are coming out of evangelical backgrounds, and it's funny because these people are not—they're they, not becoming uh, suddenly liberal Christians. Right? They are. Right. They are conservative, Bible-believing, mm-hmm. often Christians who have an inerrant view of Scripture, and who still hold to many of the same social conservative ideas that they had before, but uh, they have just come to see that the best reading of the Scripture is one that finally reconciles and understands all these all these biblical passages together i mean it's biblical to the point of being exhausting so that's just
2: yeah that's, that's why it's uh, yeah, hard that's, for me that's, that's great now, now
1: he does he does point i mean you can you can you know you could go after david bentley hart and say that he doesn't do scripture he doesn't david bentley hart doesn't do scripture the way that an evangelical fundamentalist does scripture
2: or or want someone to Right. Or expects it of them. I, I, I I agree. I I think that's true. Um, But I mean, at the same time, like heart's clear that this is a, I mean, these are, this is an essay,
1: right? Yeah. And Um, he has a whole translation of the new Testament. I know (laughs) with all of the notes, you know, he didn't even mention that.
2: Yeah. I, I, yeah. And, and what was curious to me kind of reading through Mao's article, kind of in general is that he, he never touches on like universalist passages. Right. So what what's going on there? Like he, he appeals to a couple of, of things that he thinks supports a sort of traditionalist kind of approach to hell. But like, it would be, I don't know. It'd be nice to see him engage with something like Romans five twelve through 21, something like first mm-hmm. Corinthians 15, you know, it, you know, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, like all sorts of, Colossians, all sorts of things, right? Yeah, that's unsatisfying too. If you're concerned about the Bible supporting what you're saying, then why not show how you're interacting with these texts that are really in support of Mm -hmm. universalism?
1: Or if he says says that he's keeping up with current arguments about Christian universalism, Zondervan, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a few years ago, three or four years ago now, released... um, a second edition of Four Views on Hell, with the editor is Preston Sprinkle. Well, mm-hmm. that should be a book that's on his radar screen, and if he's read that book, he would know that Preston Sprinkle says that he thinks that Robin Perry's uh, essay on uni- the Universalist interpretation of hell is an or is an, an orthodox construal of the Christian faith that can't just be brushed aside. Yes, and that with e- and evangelicals need to wrestle with it now. And and mm-hmm. to me. That kind of sensitivity is sort of is is as sensitive as he tries to be that kind of sensitivity seems to be missing from this article and you're sort of for his, and, and David Bentley Hart ends up being an easy kind of straw man to um you say, well, you don't like his tone. He doesn't put enough Bible verses <laughs> yeah, right, in, right? <laughs> uh, and so then, and then, but you don't. Then you don't have to deal with the force of his other arguments, and yeah, you can you, just. You, try don't, to... you don't have
2: to. You don't even have to address any of his arguments, right? And like, th- that's the problem with. I don't want to be sort of a DBH apologist, but like most people haven't really engaged with the arguments that he he puts forward. Most people haven't who disagree with it. There's no evidence that they either. One get the arguments,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or two have actually gone through carefully and tried to get the arguments, right? Because they get then, they get you know either it's his rhetoric or it's his lack of sort of Bible citations throughout. People get turned right. off by that,
1: but that's not well. And he said, yeah. and he says, he says that he he you know, that he keeps up with what's going on with this yeah. conversation. But then he said that a friend of some friends of his had to point out David Bentley Hart's book to him. <laughs> Like he didn't know about that. Good point. Okay, well that's, that's you know that you point. didn't you didn't even know about David Bentley Hart's book, yep. and you say that you keep up you're keeping up with the arguments on this. Yet when you write about it, you act as if you're not familiar with any of the arguments. You're not even quoting. You're not even footnoting anything. You're right. not. You're right. not. You're not. And I don't recognize and. You know, I'm I'm involved in this, and I don't even recognize myself in the caricature of Christian universalism that you're making here.
2: Yeah, yep, same. It's yeah, it's it's frustrating.
1: However, I do like it when people uh, criticize. I, I like it when people throw uh, David Bentley Hart under the bus by name, because I'm I'm glad for people to just go and read David Bentley Hart.
2: Yeah, me too. <laughs> That's
1: a good point. That's a good point, too. Yeah. And, okay, continuing on with the article. But what if we can get to universalism by proving that each person will eventually want Jesus as Lord, that no one chooses hell when they see him? This is a much stronger argument than simply that God we love wouldn't, despite what he said, condemn people. This is also what Hart argues. He says we have to ask whether a proper understanding of human nature allows us to believe that this defiant rejection of God for all eternity is really logically possible for any rational being. His argument for universalism relies on people being reasonable sooner or later leading to their saving faith. But there is no evidence that each person will finally be repentant as well as enlightened. Adolf Hitler looms large as an example of persistent defiant rejection, haven't the monstrous deeds for which Hitler is responsible put him beyond any claim to God's mercy? Hart directly addresses this question using Hitler as his case in point. No human being could ever willfully choose, he says, to fulfill the criteria necessarily just to justly damn himself or herself to perpetual misery. The fact is that the character of even the very worst among us is in part the product of external contingencies. To follow Hart's argument, we would have to assume that somewhere in the history of every soul, there are moments when a better Way was missed by mischance or by malign interventions from without or by disorders of the mind within, as he puts it. And then to underscore the point he is making, he observes that, rather than any intentional perversity on the soul's own part, these are precisely the kinds of factors at work in a case like Hitler's. The horrible deeds of Hitler, which are surely infinitely evil in every objective sense, are still prompted into action by a hunger for the good and could never in perfect clarity of mind match the sheer nihilistic scope of the evil it perpetrates. By this logic, a Hitler could not rationally resist the love of God willfully for eternity. Hart tells us that he is drawing upon insights from insights here from Byzantine Orthodoxy. His argument clearly accepts the Byzantine fondness for Plato's philosophy. Plato taught that since evil is the absence of the good, no one willingly chooses that which is evil. This perspective allows Hart to argue that what we might want to label in the Hitler case as intentional perversity is in reality a state of ignorance due to the external contingencies that Hart has listed. Hart includes the influence of disorders of the mind within as one of the factors that could have kept Hitler from clearly grasping the good. What Hart likely has in mind, in line with his Platonism, is the ways in which some of Hitler's past experiences or brain chemistry might have kept him from seeing facts clearly. Or maybe Hart thinks that Hitler could not grasp the truth because he relied on unreliable sources for his information.
2: Yeah, I think... I think he, he's he's missing Hart's point, I think, on, on especially because Hart is a robust kind of sort of human beings or rational souls being fundamentally directed toward the good, right?
1: Right. Well, in order to be rational, one has to be fundamentally directed towards it, a rational or good end. Yes. And so then without that... Uh, we could just do anything. We're just random, random behavior generators. Yeah,
2: exactly. We're just sort of like combusting things, right? Um, it's just that in our fallenness, we tend to substitute things that we believe are good in our fallenness. We believe are good for the good itself. We make that substitute substitution all the time. I think lots of people do. I do it. <laughs> From time to time, you know, um, I don't think anyone goes around being like, look at all the evil stuff I'm doing because I'm so evil, I'm choosing evil stuff. <laughs> they're, they're mistakenly and I think sinfully substituting in a good for the actual good, right? That which fulfills their being. There's no way, or I can't think of any way, with full knowledge of the good to willingly individually and discreetly choose evil <laughs> and relatedly to th- this discussion about universalism to w- willingly consciously with full knowledge choose hell for yourself. You can't do that. That is nonsense within this framework, right? It does it doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. And in the, and it's interesting, uh, uh in Hitler's case, you know, if you think of, uh, uh medieval Europe and Germany, and you know that, uh, like for instance, uh, Martin Luther, the last book that he wrote yeah. uh, was "The Jews and Their Lies." Yeah, that you know he he was very down on uh, Jewish folks. Yeah, and he I can't even I won't even say on my podcast what Martin Luther said should be done to Jews. Yeah. in his last book. Yeah, and those kinds of ideas were you know rampant and in, in his world they were in a time when it was very politically expedient to. You know, whether, uh, you know, uh, Hitler believed these ideas or not, he was trying to purify and get rid of the Antichrist, these Jews that were against Christ and to purify the, you know, the German people from from, you know, everything that was impure. And, uh, you know, whether you say he was sincere in those ideas or not, we we see all kinds of examples of people getting caught up in nationalism and ideas of ethnic cleansing and uh, Christianity has been involved in, in wars and uh, trying to uh, remove infidels, to kill infidels, right. uh, to kill heretics. You know there's been all manner of evil that's been re- uh, released upon the world by Christians in the name of doing what they think is and these are Christians, by doing in the name of what is good, in protecting the Christian faith, committing horrible.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Horrible
1: atrocities. Yeah. And so, you know, if you add on to that, that we're in a world that is darkened and depraved, and that uh, God, you know, knew this was going to happen, was not surprised by the fall of Adam and Eve, and according to Calvinist thinking, well, of course, it's just it's just the darkness and depravity of the world playing itself out inevitably. I guess that's why all of this stuff finally... Doesn't really take into account all of the contingencies and the issues and the problems. It doesn't work through God's foreknowledge. It doesn't work through God's ultimate intentions for creation. It just kind of drills down in a kind of micro-focused way on the injustice of a single moment, as if the injustice of the, the horrible injustice of of a single life could be solved somehow by the eternal torment of that of that person and how justice can be established. And if we're going by the confessions that he you know was talking about the, mm. the the old confessions that he says he's happy with the the idea that that one could you know torment and punish hitler forever then once you think about the monstrosity of that at at some point the foreverness of it just doesn't make sense anymore
2: yeah i i you're spot on there david i i think it's oh man yeah this <laughs> <laughs> it 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 breaks my heart, honestly, just to be kind of vulnerable here, that people don't see the beauty in the universalist gospel as revealed in Christ. It just I do get worked up a bit sometimes in terms of how people are talking about it, but at the end of the day, it just kind of it just I get sad because there is so much love and joy and you know, amazing possibilities in terms of how we can relate to our neighbor and to the other, to people we don't know mm-hmm. w- when this is true about reality. Well, I think that, you know,
1: like, <laughs> well, that's, what, uh, is, you know, it's funny that that he's concerned about his, his evangelical friends yeah. who sort of see the beauty of universalism and wish it was true, but just don't think they can find their way there because they got some biblical roadblocks and things they just can't get around. But it's like he doesn't even... He doesn't even see the beauty of it.
2: I know. I know. <laughs> That's what, you know. And, he, and so it's like sees, he only sees, as he says, he only really sees glory and beauty in this particular construal of the gospel. That I'm assuming, even though he doesn't make it clear in this article, is the sort of Calvinist gospel that he buys into. That's where he sees joy and. And well, it's it just, like, and wow, it, I don't I don't see it.
1: Well, I tell I, when people ask me about seminary, what's it like going to seminary? I said, well, it's not like medical school because, you, you know, you yeah. get a medical school and they're pretty much all teaching, you know, pretty much the same kind of medicine. Right. But seminaries are kind of like silos that tend to reinforce the views of. To where the people that are best at reinforcing those views go to the top, sure. And if they stop reinforcing those views along the way, then they get spit out. Yeah. So especially if you are in an evangelical setting, you are going to continue to reinforce these views, are continued to be reinforced, and over the course of a lifetime. And he even talks in his in his book uh, that I referenced earlier. He talks about his grandmother who was a Dutch Calvinist. You know, so he's generationally immersed in all of this. He's been teaching all of this. He has been, you know, he's got relationships that are involved in all this. He's got friends that are arguing all of this. Yeah. He's being, you know, he's being praised and recognized as a great leader in reformed circles because of all of this. You know, so I imagine that once you're sort of, you're you, once you are so, have seen it this way for so long, that uh, this sort of sudden resurgence of, of Christian universalism, and you know, in reading David Bentley Hart, who admittedly, you know, when he criticizes uh, like a Calvinist construal, he will criticize it. He he may not criticize the people who hold it harshly, but he can, but he will criticize the construal harshly. Yes. So I can imagine it's sort of, it's sort of bracing for somebody who's been used to being praised, to come across such a sort of a brutal. Critique. Yeah,
2: and they, they probably think this is directed at me, right? This this yeah. is not about the sort of arguments or the positions. Like, there's some sort of like personal offense, um, or, or they think they're they're the attack is on them as people, you know? Right? Um, yeah.
1: Well, speaking speaking of the attack on people, I'll continue on the article. He says, for those of us who do not want to set the Bible aside in thinking about these matters. We cannot ignore Jesus' extensive teachings, such as those in Matthew 25, on how some will be welcomed and some will be shut out, followed by his warning that those who despise the gifts of God will not only be thrown out of the outer darkness, but also lose what they were given. Nor can we forget what the Apostle Paul said about willful disobedience to the good. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be be known about God is plain to them. They are without excuse, Romans 1, 18 through 20. I've taught many courses on Plato's dialogues, and I have pointed my students to this Pauline teaching that people who deny God are without excuse. In light of it, we must reject the Byzantine insistence that it is not possible for a human being to knowingly choose that which is evil. However, the Bible does describe a non-Platonistic process of rejecting the good without what we would call normally call willfulness. We can fail to follow the truth we see in what seems like minor ways, leading us to wander further from the path of wisdom. Our spiritual lives have a fundamentally directional character. We're each on a trajectory toward God or away from Him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism highlights this factor in the first question and answer in telling us that our chief end as human beings is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I'll just pause there.
2: Okay, a few things to say about this. So, thinking back a little bit, I think I think Mao said that heart doesn't have much textual basis for the idea that people will eventually become eventually come into a place where they they everybody confesses Christ lordship, right? Well, I don't uh, come on. Like Philippians 2:11, <laughs> right? Every tongue gladly confessing. Right. I mean, this has septuagintal roots. It's not just confessing; it's gladly confessing. So you can't make a distinction between, oh, these are there are some people who are just confessing it just to do it, or some people who truly mean it. It seems to be everyone is doing it in Philippians too. Um, so, in Hart mm-hmm. talks about this too. He also makes a critical translation move there in Philippians too, um, that it's mm-hmm. it's gladly confess. At that point, so that that seems to be pretty good basis to say that people will eventually gladly confess Christ's lordship. What does that mean? Seems to mean that they're saved, right?
1: <laughs> if that's the criteria, uh, I would love to talk to you about this part because what he says is uh, he quotes Romans first chapter there without oh, excuse. Yes, know yeah. The, yeah. you know what, what, what's plain to them there without excuse. Well, one of the things that I've learned from the uh, scholarship of Douglas Campbell yes. is that Romans is a, a, a is a some type of a dialogue that's going back and forth between a character who is arguing kind of a legalistic version yes. of the Christian faith versus the character who is arguing a non non-legalistic grace-based uh, and if you read Romans 1 there's a lot of judgment, a Mm -hmm. judgmental kind of Mm -hmm. language in Romans one, and then you get to Romans two and it starts out. And if you, if you get a good translation, it starts out, but, but who are you, man? Who are you? Oh, man, to, to, to talk this way to, you know, because you are guilty yourself. So it's, it's not really recognizing the, the Romans, the first chapter of Romans involves us in a really interesting exercise in interpretation. Yes, And this might be a good point for you to get to talk a little bit about your, uh, <laughs> I don't know, a little bit about your book, we, because we, Douglas yeah, Campbell do, is the scholar who is, yeah. Yeah. Douglas Campbell is the scholar that's really helping us work through Romans so that we don't miss yeah. that Paul's ultimate argument is for an argument completely about grace. Yes. It's an anti-legalistic argument, yes. and it ends in Romans 11.32 with the glorious declaration that God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy upon all.
2: That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So Romans one eighteen through thirty two, and then also two one through three twenty. Campbell, at this point, I think famously has situated this within a different sort of rhetorical uh, kind of register than it's normally been understood. So he sees, like you said, David, he sees an opponent. Um, as the one speaking in Romans one eighteen through thirty two, so someone that Paul's unhappy with, who is preaching this sort of, as you said, the the old kind
1: of uh, man. It's the old man. man. Yeah. Who are you, old man? This exactly. is the old man.
2: So then, at two one, you get the turn on who was speaking in one eighteen to thirty two, right? So, um, and then throughout two and into three as well, you get a sort of basically a reductio ad absurdum so what he's trying to do is kind of reduce what has been said in romans 1 18 to 32 he's trying to show how there's tensions and contradictions kind of like what we're doing here um mm-hmm. tensions in contradictions in what someone is saying and then sort of reducing it to oh actually your system doesn't really work if you say this here you say this here that doesn't really line up it turns out by the the time we get through um the middle of three, chapter three, uh, that the his opponent's position completely falls apart. It doesn't work as an account of the gospel. It doesn't work as something that can actually evangelize pagans, or Gentiles, um, who's, I mean, Paul is an apostle to the pagans, right? Um, it doesn't actually work. It doesn't save anyone within your system because no one can do the things that you expect them to do. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of the a super kind of big picture understanding of Romans one through three. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that there's another voice in the room and I don't blame Mao for not knowing that. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's a very minority position. The idea that there's another kind of rhetorical thing going on in Romans one to three. Um, but what it does do is it, it, It allows you to see that Paul is much more consistently and really fervently on the side of a God of unconditional love and grace all the way through. Once you see this stuff going on in one, you don't actually have to attach Paul's own voice to 118 to 32. He's quoting someone else. He's speaking the voice of somebody else there it's actually the exact opposite of his gospel, <laughs> which is kind of ironic yeah. because so much of, I think, Christianity is built on the theology of Romans 1 understood traditionally. When in fact, I think the real heart of the gospel is what Paul is actually committed to 99% of the time, which is we're participating in a God of love through Christ and by his spirit. We're in that now. And that's, that's where Paul starts from.
1: Yeah. Is in that well, also, location. you know,
2: yeah.
1: you know this uh, talks about the Byzantine insistence that it's not possible for human beings to knowingly choose that which is evil. In, in, well, as opposed to the Calvinist insistence that it is not possible for totally depraved humans to choose that which is good. Right. Um. So there's another, you know, another kind of irony there. I guess, the, the, to me, the best way to work this out is to say human beings have the imago dei, uh, when they go against that, when they sin, you know they tarnish, they cloud that, they become diluted, they can become um, they can become deranged as they 're coming out of it, they can get to the point where they start to real you know they yes. can get to a point where they don 't they don 't even realize that what they 're doing is wrong okay now, but then, as they start coming up out of that, they get to the point where they realize that what they 're doing is wrong but they 're still doing it. At least they now they know that what they're wrong, but they still, the momentum of the sinful inclinations and dispositions are still running the show. But now there's an awareness that what I'm doing is wrong. Finally, then, once one becomes fully illumined uh, and fully sees their situation for what it is, then it's kind of like an alcoholic who finally wakes up, or like the prodigal son who finally comes to his senses and it's like, why am I doing this to myself? Once that happens... Then, if a person is rational, you know, if God has made human beings to be rational, if the imago dei is God's gift to each person as a child, mm-hmm. then as that all gets cleared up, there's only one direction that they're going to want to go, and the idea yes. that God is their Correct. ultimate father, or parent, yeah. would not receive them in that return journey. The more that I've thought about it, it just seems more and more ridiculous.
2: Yeah, and like, I mean, if you're going to appeal to Romans one. As as Mao does, um, as an example of where people can willingly choose to do evil and they're without excuse. What do you do with Romans seven then, where we clearly try to do the good, but we can't? <laughs> we keep yeah. stepping over into the choices that I don't want to make. So there's something else going on here. Um, there's like you said, we're enslaved. And like we've been talking about, like there's something else going on here. We can't just sort of absent of sin and death in the flesh, make choices for evil. That doesn't make any sense, which is another good reason why, you know, Romans 1 might be in another person's voice, right? Uh, Paul seems to be committed to in Romans 7, this idea that we're enslaved and when we try to do the good, we don't do it. We try so hard. How does Romans 7 end though? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we need that deliverance. I mean, it's a similar thing to what John is doing, right? With uh, the, the the truth, God's truth sets you free. <laughs> That's where freedom is. That's where it's located. It's not in you having some sort of ability to be free in and of yourself. It is that God sets you free from the constraints that you're involved in.
1: Right. And that keeps you from boasting, saying, well, look at me, look what I did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But you can boast in Christ because he's the one doing it. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. All right. Well, we have been talking about, what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish out this article and we'll do our last kind of remarks about it. Okay. Uh, Mao says, redeeming grace restores our ability to pursue that end once again. We Christians are in a process of moving toward the end for which God creates and redeems us. This reality is captured beautifully in 1 John 3, 2. Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In classic theological terms, this is about sanctification as a process and glorification as the goal When the Spirit plants new life in the deep places of a person's being, the person begins a process of becoming sanctified, moving toward the eschatological goal of being glorified. That end product is what we will be when Christ appears. In the present pre glorification stage of our journeys, we live with the mystery of what we will be like when our chief end is reached. In his Weight of Glory essay, Lewis captures the mystery of how, as the King James Version puts it, it doth not yet appear what we shall be in the Christian journey. Lewis observes that while we have little problem thinking much about our own future glory, we are in no danger of reflecting too much on the future glory of others. It would be spiritually healthy, Lewis says, for us to reverse this pattern. Quote, the load, weight, or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a good spiritual exercise for us to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. This is a compelling observation, and understandably it is frequently cited. But there is a brief clause that concludes Lewis' observation that is less frequently quoted. He immediately adds that, in addition to those who will be marvelously glorified, there are some human beings who, if we could catch a glimpse of them in their final state, we would witness a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. For those who are headed in a direction opposite to that of glorification, it is also true that it doth not yet appear what their destination will be like. The ultimate lostness of hell is real. I don't mean to be harsh with my evangelical friends who wish they could be universalists. They are often motivated by a concern for the souls of loved ones who have not accepted Christ. I am concerned, though, about theological slippage in our evangelical community. To tell our younger generation that we wish the Bible were not so clear about the reality of hell could encourage them simply to take the step that we resist taking. Embracing universalism means theological and spiritual loss. We miss out on the glory of redeemed people and the fullness of divine glory. In a universalist future, God brushes off the degradation of his creatures. The wedding supper is not filled with guests dressed in the clothes of righteousness, but with people trying to pass off their sin as inevitable and therefore able to be dismissed. And God lets them. I find such a present and such a hypothetical future to be disheartening. I find it to be something far short of the joyful and triumphant repudiation of wrong the Bible promises. While I don't want to be a universalist, I do pray for unbelievers whom I love, even as I pray for justice for victims of oppression. And I do so in hope, as Abraham said in Genesis, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Just some final thoughts on this, okay. if you don't mind. So the,
2: the the point about universalism sort of passing off sins as inevitable I don't know really what to say to that. I, I mean, who says, I don't this?
1: think that will be the, I don't think the con- that'll be the conversation we'll be having at the final supper. Yeah. It's like it will be yeah. like, can you believe, can you believe how horrible I was?
2: Yeah. Who, I who, was
1: absolutely awful.
2: But also what universalist says this, like it's, it's the caricature, right. That God just sort right. of passes over sins. And like, as we've talked about, we have, we universalists have a, a coherent and really, I think powerful account of judgment which is God's the fires of God's love burning away all that gets in the way of being in communion with with God through Christ and by the Spirit right um, sins aren't passed off. Sins are addressed. <laughs> They're actually burned <laughs> directly by the fires of love. So it's not like mm-hmm. we're saying nothing happens to sin. Right. It's okay that you sin. There's no accountability there. It, yeah. it we're and fully accountable. In fact, it's going to be painful. I think for for a lot of us. So
1: yeah. And it's funny. You know, it's it's funny that evangelicals. Uh, you know, you need to be careful. You know, you can quote C.S. Lewis but keep quoting C.S. Lewis too long and we're going to run into George McDonald.
2: Absolutely.
1: And you don't want to because, go
2: there.
1: <laughs> right. Which is really funny because, um, you know, it was an, it was a, it was a evangelical who put me onto C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was C.S. Lewis who put me on to George McDonald. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you're just, you're just one step, you're just one step away. Yeah. And, you know, so that that and that God, so that what happens is you have the vilest creature that you can possibly imagine. OK, well, so now God's God can't do anything with that. But you've got you've got passages in the New Testament with God. All things are, you know, when it comes to the salvation of the rich man. Oh, yeah, how can yeah. he be saved? Well, with man, that's impossible. With God, all things are possible or the salvation of the garrison demoniac. This man is completely one hundred percent possessed yep. and overcome by evil. Yep. Yet, yep. what does he bring to the table? Nothing. Yep. But Christ throws, but expels the evil out of him. And what happens when, when the evil is is expelled out of the Garrison demoniac? Does he just run off into the field? No, he is dressed and in his right mind, and he is sitting at the feet of Christ. That's right. Another example of what happens when people, you know, are in their right mind. It, but so once you start having a more universalist reading of things, all those verses just keep, you just keep, you know, like immediately jumping, uh, jumping to them, to your mind. And he ends, yeah, and yeah, he yeah. ends yeah. it, and he ends it with the most, the most, in my mind, ironic statement.
2: <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> You're exactly yeah, right.
1: Genesis eighteen twenty five. will not the judge of the, all the earth do right, which is basically the, where the Bible re- records human beings challenging God to do right by God's own nature and goodness. Yep.
2: Mao talks an awful lot about God's glory and justice. He never once talks about God's love in this article. Never once. I looked through it. He never talks about God's love. I think that's somewhat telling. And I I think it's instructive for us too. If we're wanting to talk about who God is all the way down and and issues to do with God's salvific purposes for the cosmos, we better be talking about God's love all the way through. If we're not, we're making a mistake, I think. That was just something I I noticed.
1: Yeah. Well, what was ironic to me is I I went to seminary at a very uh, progressive liberal seminary and the main thing that the people wanted to talk about in my seminary was the justice for the poor and the oppressed. Yeah, sure. And you know the, the idea was justice for the poor and the oppressed is they're lifted up out of their poverty and they have a good standard of living and health and you know they're they're yeah. not uh, you know they're restored and they have their full human dignity and everything you know restored restored to them. So usually when I read uh Calvinists or evangelicals they're interested in um. OK, that that justice has to be worked out on the, um, you know, and that the way justice works out is if you don't believe in Jesus, you know, then you're not covered for your sins and God has to pour his wrath on Correct. you. Now, yeah. then Mao comes along, but he's concerned about justice. He's concerned that his his reform tradition has gotten so interested in in the heaven and hell situation after we die that they're not concerned about earthly injustice. So you know he comes along as a young reformed Christian, and he's concerned about um, the Vietnam War. He's concerned yeah. about uh, he's concerned about social justice. He's concerned about racism. Yeah. He's concerned about Christian nationalism. Yeah. He's concerned. I mean, if if you if you he's concerned that patriotism not get out of control and not you know turn into some kind of nationalist mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. nationalism, some kind of Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. So to me he has these glasses of justice on and and i can see that kind of you know when it, it because who is who is he really who is he really upset about that, are, that it's the people they're going to get away with even as i pray for justice for victims of oppression okay now in the old heidelberg catechism in the westmin you know all those old it was, it was all about election and predestination and the people who were going to go to hell were not just the people who, who were the worst oppressors. Right, They were anybody who died right. in a state of unbelief. Yeah. That was any, and that was everybody. So in their world, that was the, uh, especially as their world broadened out and they started meeting more kinds of people. And and now as the reform situation sits in the world today, full of Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and entire world, the idea that all of these quote "good folks, these non-oppressive people, are still going to face the same fate as the worst oppressors ever. Yeah. I don't know the I just kind of think that his uh, vision of justice, in a way, is kind of overdetermining in in kind of in a way it's kind of the tail is kind of wagging the dog like okay. you're saying yeah. it's it's yeah. we're not getting the 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 primary the essence of God's love as the determining factor and the definer of everything else is just not taking its proper place.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, and I th- I think that's that's just so important, I think. And that that's what drives kind of our the way that you and I and other universalists think about this is that we need God's love <laughs> is primary. That, that's yeah. really where we're coming from is, is a God of unconditional love.
1: Well, John, uh, I want to thank you and Ethan, uh, for, you know, your, uh, your YouTube channels that you're working on in your book. So let's just uh, finish up. Tell us a little bit more about your YouTube channels that you're participating in and how people can find out more about that and about the book that's coming out sometime. Yeah,
2: sure. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, Yeah, the the YouTube channel is Apocalypse Here. So it's youtube.com slash apocalypse here. The sort of broad kind of mission, I guess, of the channel is to bring theology and biblical studies to people in a way that's accessible to them. We have made a lot of content on universalism, which is kind of how I, I think David and I got connected <laughs> initially. Right. Um, and yeah, so go over there, check out the, the, the videos that we've got. We have a and the idea, you know, the idea up, of yeah.
1: apocalypse, when you say apocalypse here, a lot of times people will think, oh, he's wanting to talk about the end of the world, the end times. Yeah. yeah. But apocalypse, the real meaning of apocalypse is pulling back. Mm-hmm. pulling unveiling. back and seeing things yeah, unveiling right. yeah so this is the so what you're trying to do is unveil and take a look at you know maybe what is what's going on here what's going on with god what's that's right that's right what's that's happening a, here
2: that's that's exactly right um so yeah we're not we're not a you know a, a channel that's concerned with you know trying to you know, predict the end times or anything like that, which is, <laughs> I think some, some people. Right.
1: I just wanted to, since it's called <laughs> yeah. apocalypse here, yeah, yeah, I yeah. just want to make sure that people didn't understand yes. that. That's, I didn't, that's, didn't that's misunderstand great
2: that. Yes. Great point. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what we do on the channel. We've got a, a lot of, uh, we've got a kind of primer series, which gives you kind of an introduction to various aspects of theology. Um, we've got interviews up there. We've got, uh, I've posted some of my talks that I've given at various churches. There's a lot on there. Um, and then the other channel that's that both Ethan and I are involved in, that was originally his channel is called Spartan Theology. Um, that's become more of a kind of informal channel. We do some, we've been doing recently some uh, what we're calling critical apologetics videos which is we're uh, showing certain video clips from modern apologists and kind of Mm -hmm. talking about why, what they're saying or giving certain insights into what they're saying that give you a different perspective than just being like, oh yeah, this seems true. Really kind of focusing on what they're actually saying and what they're saying about the gospel, what they're saying about God, what they're saying about Jesus, all that sort of stuff. Um, And it's from that sort of place of revelation as you were saying, unveiling in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, where that that's our primary kind of starting point for all of this stuff. So we've got those two channels going on. So it's Apocalypse here, that's kind of our main channel, and then Spartan theology is a bit more informal. Um yeah. So please come by, like and subscribe.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, it's it's uh I've been I've enjoyed this conversation I'm i looking to do, looking forward. it. tell me just really quickly the name of the book and when it's when you think yes, it might the be book. coming out.
2: Okay, so the book Tentatively titled um, Beyond Justification, A Defense of Paul's Gospel. So Douglas Campbell and I have been working on this for a while. We've had some hangups. Uh, we started it quite a while ago, but it just it's taken a while to come together. But we're just about done. And God willing, we should have it submitted by the end of April. So beyond that, okay. I don't know.
1: We'll okay. See. Well, it might be the end then before before it actually gets out right
2: we'll see but uh, yeah uh be on the lookout for that
1: all right well thank you again so much for your time you bet and uh i'll look forward to future conversations and listening to you and ethan um uh, talking and and visiting
0: about all this stuff uh, together as well
1: sounds good thank you david all right talk to you later john
0: bye-bye thank you for joining us in this episode of grace saves all You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.